You're listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. One of our sponsors of the Dairy Voice podcast is National DHIA. NDHIA ensures information accuracy and represents their members' interests. They are the direct voice for the dairy information industry. To find out more, go to dhia.org. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're listening to the Dairy Voice podcast by Dairy Business News. I'm your host, Connie Cooper, with Seal Pro Silage Barrier Films by Connor AgriScience. Well, man, oh man, it's hot out here in Clovis, California, where I'm recording from, and it's been so hot all over the country. How are your cows doing? Heat stress is a real thing, but there are ways to help our cattle stay a little cooler. My guest today is Tony Hall with Lalamond Animal Nutrition, and we'll be talking about some practices that can help with heat stress and maybe some that you hadn't thought of or heard of before. So welcome, Tony. Please introduce yourself and, and tell us how you got to this point in your career with Wallamond. Yeah, thanks, Connie. And uh, hello, everybody. Uh, straight away, you'll recognize the accent is slightly different. I'm obviously a, a Celtic British transplant, uh, but I've been in the United States on a steep learning curve now for, uh, for 25 years. Uh, in terms of background, let me be brief because my background is not the main topic, but I worked with the British Government Extension Agency um, for a good number of years. I did some work in uh, commerce in, in the Bridge Isles as well. So both poacher or gamekeeper, depending on how one sees life. And I had the opportunity in um, 1997 to come over and work in the States, which I, uh, which I jumped at and, and decided to stay. Uh, it's been a wonderful learning curve looking at different forages and different management systems. And by background, Connie, to kind of if I introduce this subject, uh, people will probably be aware, historically at least, you know, the dairy situation in, in Britain and Europe to a large degree was, was kind of temperate. There wasn't any real challenges. And you look across the pond there to the United States, and, and I saw two things that intrigued me as, as a lot younger guy then. There was total mixed rations, TMR feeding, which hadn't really taken off um, in the UK. It was in its infancy. So something new to learn in terms of the feed management of dairy cows. But more intriguingly to me, a wide range of conditions from the north to the south and from the east to the west. And what, what, I'm, what I mean by that is really climatic changes where you could have cows being fed under, under cold conditions, something new to learn, and actually cows being fed under, under hot conditions and heat stress, uh, which is where we find ourselves at the moment. And I have a biochemistry background as well as ruminant nutrition. So the, the, the way that cows might adapt and the way that humans managing them and taking care of them for their health and well-being, productivity and profitability was something that interested me and has uh, captured my attention even after 25 years. And I hope to do it a little bit longer. Well, you talked about the differences in the country. The heat here that we have in California is so dry. The, the heat in the Midwest and the East is so humid. At what point do cows start being affected by heat? And what about that humidity and the combination of that? Well, th this, this is a great question. P part of it, we can, we can think about a little bit of history. Uh, and I hope the audience will, will just go with me here for a moment. In terms of biological evolutionary history, you know, the Bostaurus type, that, you know, the dairy cow that we work with of all the different breeds, re really comes from the era of, of the Ice Age. So they're actually used to cooler conditions. 
and, and biologists have a kind of like um, a zone that they say animals will be comfortable in. And comfortable is different to being productive, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But in terms of the, the, the comfort zone for dairy cows, and it varies between the authors, but if you wanted to give our audience a feel for it, somewhere from 40 degrees Fahrenheit right up to about 65, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. But those would be kind of still air temperatures. And as you've quite rightly pointed out, we don't really there have the influence of, uh, of humidity. So if, if we kind of build on that and build on your question and, and help explain our observations, we, we have a term in the industry that you're familiar with called temperature humidity index. And, and, and that helps us understand the challenge to the cows a little bit more. And the one thing I would want to say around that is unlike us human beings that can sweat pretty easily all around our body and put moisture on the skin to keep cool, the cows can't really do that. So the thing that the producer would see and, and, and the herds people team would be some kind of increased respiration rate and maybe some increased breathing and panting. But generally in terms of sweating, all the cow can do is really just have some sweating on the nose, that's a moist surface, and some sweating around the mammary gland. So they don't do an awful lot of sweating, so they need help. So now we now understand why humidity can be such a challenge. So we've, we've produced for uh, ourselves a, a set of ready reckoned tables that we call the temperature humidity index. We refer to that as the THI, uh, just for brevity. And obviously, if you think about a situation where you're maybe in the West and the Southwest, where the humidity is really low, let's say less than 20%, more like 10%, then cows can be pretty comfortable in those 70 degree Fahrenheit, 72, 74, no, no real problems. As we get to you know, some other parts of the world where the humidity might be more like 40, 50, 60%, then that humidity comes into play and that, that challenges the cows a bit more to dissipate the heat. So now their, their comfort level is reduced somewhat more to kind of 70, 72 degrees as opposed to 74, 75. And then if we get to some unusual situations and we get some high humidity times, you know, in, in, in the 80%, let's say, you know, then their, their comfort zone is reduced dramatically. And I think that's really... Yo, Jermaine, for our conversation today, because what I hope or think will strike us all is historically we've always wrestled with seasonal heat stress and deciding how much we want to adapt our facilities to try and take care of that challenge, more so in the south and, and less so in the north, perhaps. Uh, but this is an unusual situation that we see ourselves in this year, both for the staff working on the farm and the cows that they're working with. We, we've had extended periods of heat and humidity for prolonged times without a real break for the cow. Right. And that's important, too, to mention, too, I think, is the break. We see that here in California where uh, our cows with the cooling methods that we try to employ can can withstand a little bit higher temperatures. We, when we really get into trouble is when we don't cool off at night. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a huge deal. And and, and actually, we we, we, this, we see the same up here in, in previous years. You know, our, our cooling systems would, would cut in, you know, quite quickly in the early morning and stand for most of the day. And, and interestingly, when you when you look at some barns, you know, and some facilities, you know, the, the cows can still be warm through the night, but eventually they'll switch themselves off. I'm not seeing that anymore this year in particular. You know, what, whatever adaptive mechanisms are used to help cool the cows on a lot of facilities uh, that they're running full time at the moment. And I think part of our challenges in the industry is we're trying to protect something that's very productive and very valuable. 
But as we would all know, you know, the uh, the cows generate our, our own heat. If we think about a human being, a non-ruminant, we don't have a rumen. We generate a little bit of heat when we eat to keep warm. But the cow has a big rumen in there and, and she generates a, a lot more heat every hour. Uh, and we can actually describe that as British thermal units, almost like having a, a fireplace on inside the cow. So the cow's in a really unique position, Connie, whereby she, she wants to uh, eat and make milk. And to do that, she's going to generate heat as part of the fermentation and metabolism. And she needs a way to get rid of that heat. And she actually, she actually can't do it herself. And so once we think about our old friend, that upper critical limit again of, of 70 odd degrees, again, influenced by humidity, we suddenly have to be focused on, you know, helping the cow, you know, dissipate that heat by, by heat abatement mechanisms. And if we don't do that, let's just clarify as an industry, what, what we probably come up against is changes and reductions in dry matter intake changes in rumination behavior that, that, that will show up. Definitely some drift in, in, in milk yield content that can be hard to recover. A shift in milk fat content that can be hard to recover. We can see subtle changes like maybe a change in respiration rate. I've been on situations both in the West and Southwest recently where we can even see in, in the depth of the afternoon and early evening, it's so bad that, you know, that, that out in the corral that the cows are salivating, you know, because they're panting and breathing and the saliva is dripping. And so we have a subtlety there, kind of, we, we have a twofer subtlety, which, which works against the cow and the primary producer, because we're losing that valuable sort of salivary bicarbonate, which we would want to, to buffer the room. And I hope that makes sense. But also that breathing is, is a subtle thing physiologically for this type of high producing cow, because what she's really doing is breathing carbon dioxide out more regularly. And the cow has to maintain a bicarbonate uh, carbon dioxide balance in her bloodstream just to stay alive and keep the enzymes working so what she subtly does at her expense and our expense is she secretes bicarbonate out in the urine so these these hot cows are very fragile bicarbonate reserves part of that salivary loss we've often all seen that and part of that is that hidden loss that we don't know about in the urine and and, and so there's been some great studies done in heat chambers over the years which don't see the light of day anymore they're a few decades old but the conclusion that one comes to when one looks at room and pH uh, and looks at time under pH 5.8 is that our heat stressed dairy cows are probably subject to subacute rum acidosis at more times in their life than they are at any other times of the year. So heat stress brings with it its own challenges. And then, of course, as you know, we've got that situation where unless they're kept cool, they're going to stand a lot more. And so we've got the um, attendant lameness and laminitis challenges later in the year. And, 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 and who knew? Who knew but hot cows, you know, the reproduction doesn't go very well. Embryonic death is, 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 is quite high under heat stress conditions. So we've got a lot of short term, medium term and, and long term incentives to help manage the cows to keep them cool and stay the most productive. Right. Well, we've talked about about uh, the heat, the heat index, and the uh, but that but as that is doing to our cows. What are some effective environmental methods that that you've seen out in the field that will help keep cows cool? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I'm going to lead into that and build off our own friend THI again, the Temperature Humidity Index. There has been very good research done on that at the University of Arizona, setting a new baseline for us to help her understand our cows better. And that index is now 68. It used to be higher. So what we've really done, if you like, is lowered the ceiling, if you like lowered the bar, Connie, for what we need to do and how we need to intervene. What, what, what that says to you and me and the audience, I hope, is... We, we have to do something uh, and, and it's going to start with facilities. It's going to start with some approach to heat abatement. That's going to depend 
on each individual farm business and, and, and what, what their investment capabilities are and how they can manage that. And you and I can think of situations, and I've seen these before, both in the US and around the world, where it might be pastures or might be large open corrals, and it might be some type of shade structure with, with, with some fan help, you know, around the collecting area, the milking pile and the return alley. And, and, and that might be as good as it gets. And that's not a criticism. That's a great place to start because we can at least shade the cows from, from the direct effect of, um, of the heat. And we'll talk about water as a separate issue common to all facilities. What I tend to see more and more where it can be invested in and where it can be employed is fan technology. Fans are a great way to move air. Any way we can move the air around the cows. And we can now buy these cheap and cheerful wind speed meters that we can kind of take in the barn and, and, and get them down at cow level and just see what we need to do. My recommendation, you know, for, for, for the clients listening is to work with your consultant nutritionist and, and try and find a way of getting air moving across those cows at a minimum of five miles per hour. And so there's a way that those fans can be angled at 15 to 20 degrees off vertical and set apart at e equal intervals. If, if it's a three foot fan, it's a 30 foot distance. If it's a four foot fan, it's a 40 foot different distance. But get those fans orientated down the feed fence, down the internal stores and down the outside row. And, and that's a great place to start. So the air movement, that will, that will take care of the ventilation, although I'm sure the central ridge is going to help that. But air movement at cow level is paramount. Then after that, because we have different challenges of, of different humidity profiles, and we know this year it's hanging about a lot, a lot longer, we're then going to be talking, aren't we, I think about you know some kind of a mist mechanism, droplet mechanism there at the feed race, right, to get those cows soaked. And depending on what the challenge is in, in any given environment, Connie, we're probably going to have those things running for about a minute and a minute and a half. Again, a little bit of homework needed here with the team where we're going to get those cows soaked on the back to the skin, but we're not going to let that run round to the gland and contaminate the teeth. So usually there'll be a way where it might run for a minute and then it might not run for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. That's a bit of homework between the farm team and the consultant to make that work. We call that evaporative cooling and that's that's you put that alongside fast moving fans and we can cool those cows down you know, real quickly. Now, if I may, um, Connie, second guess another question, because this is one thing that's intrigued me over the years, if we think about we're leading ourselves there into extra water supply, and we have to be honest with ourselves in our industry with milking, and, and now we've probably got some you know feed fence line soaking, water's at a premium. And the point I'm coming to here, we want to make sure we've got adequate drinking space for, for the cows as well. And there's a few trade-offs, right? We've got to have enough trough space. My own personal opinion, because I think our ideas have moved on from 10 or 20 years ago, we used to say, one and a half to two inches of accessible linear trough space per cow per day. Now I think we say three, okay? And that's the total you know, drinking trough space in, in, in the facility. I think we also want to make sure the cows don't have far to walk, so it needs to be with inside a, a, a 80 foot. And I think we need more than one drinking point in the barn. But most barns these days are big enough to accommodate that. And I think we ally that where we can with some parlor exit water. And I think we've got, I think we've got water you know, really taken care of. But what one point where I heard a, a, I, I learned a very hard lesson on a farm, check the refresh rate, check the plumbing. 
if we're using a lot of water around the farm for milking or we're using sprinklers, just make sure the well and the pump has the capabilities. I've been in situations where, and you'll see it, a gaggle of cows are hanging around the trough and there's, there's no water in the trough because the plumbing can't keep up with it. And then finally, when everything's warm like this, everything gets a little funky, right? Everything gets a little biological and it can kind of have microbes and algae that can grow in real quickly. And I think any, any farm business that can encourage its employees to keep those water troughs clean on a regular basis, we're, we're recommending a cup of bleach per gallon of water and a scrubbing brush, like we would do with our Wellington Boots on Farm, and, and just get in there and scrub those troughs clean, drain them or tilt if they're a tilt-type trough, and then just refresh and rinse them out and uh, you know, then, then put the fresh water back in. And, and, and that level of chlorine is not detrimental to the human being or, or, or the animal. It's, it's the same thing that you and I would have used years ago to clean babies' formula bottles before the new, the new stuff came along. You know? So they're all just a, a little bit of extra care and attention where microbial growth that's antagonistic to cow production is against us to help the basic biology of the cow. And, and, and make sure there's always enough water to drink. And if there isn't, get somebody in professional to attend to the plumbing right away and the refresh rates. And finally, Connie, I've thrown a lot here, I'm sorry, but we've had drought areas and we've had heavy rain areas and everything in the well and the aquifer might not be exactly that you think it is. And I've been involved in a few cases this recently where I would recommend some water quality analysis. There have been some surprises compared to where the water analysis have, might have been in the previous couple of years. And there may be reasons of, of, of material that's in the water why the cows don't want to drink as much as they do. And again, that's that's due, due to the weather patterns this year. But I think that's something we'll keep an eye on in the future. Right? A, lot, a, lot to, a lot to chew on there, but we hit the important points that we tackle heat abatement first. And an and ally to that is, is water supply and availability, right? California Bioenergy is a leading developer of dairy digesters in America. With more than 100 projects, over 50 of them operational, CalBio has the expertise to help your dairy generate revenue by capturing methane and creating renewable vehicle fuels. Founded by a dairy farmer, CalBio considers itself the most dairy-focused digester developer, building systems to last generations, along with your existing family-owned operation. Now expanding with its subsidiaries, Northwest, Midwest, and Southwest Bioenergy, CalBio is ready to serve you. To learn more about how a CalBio digester could benefit your dairy, manure, and wallet, visit them at calbioenergy.com. Now, and, and your point is well taken about the, uh, the changes in the water at this point, because uh, uh, with all the rain that we've had in here in California and in any other time, you know, when you have any kind of runoff in any part of the country, that's important to get that water tested. I'm also curious um, how often you recommend that these water troughs be cleaned. I, I would say, I mean, the, the problem is for me in this in this presentation is I can make work for anybody because I don't have to do it. But I, I, I would really say once a week, I would say once a week is is and, and it seems like a lot. And everybody's got a lot to do, you know, with collecting the cows, milking the cows, getting them, getting the beds groomed, you know, getting the TMR there, getting everything fed. It's just that little attention to detail that, that, that makes all the difference. Right. And, 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 and intrinsically, as one's cleaning the trough, you know, one can also see how 
how fast that uh, trough is 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 refreshing and and and, and ready to go. So it is, you know, we just have to make time for those things un under these crazy conditions, right? Um, okay. So earlier in our conversation, you talked about specifically within the rumen how heat affects cattle. So mm. let's move on and talk about from the inside out. How can we st help cows stay cool uh, nutritionally? And are there things that we can feed them to help that process? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I want to start with a subject, Debbie, that, that's dear to your heart. And we'll kind of start with macronutrition, if you like, before we go down to micronutrition. Okay. It's, it, it's always been intriguing to me, um, the forage base, right? Uh, you and I have talked about the forage base at, at, at length. We want a digestible forage base where there's been a minimum loss of nutrients through the fermentation process. So, yeah, we need really good silage making technique. Yeah, that's a given. Really good sealing technique and really good face and drop palm management technique, right? So that, that feeds into side sheets and, 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 and top sheets and oxygen barrier films. So we've got to make sure we do that job properly. And, and, and I'm going to emphasize this. This is a bit of a hobby horse of mine. This time of the year, there are microbes, as you know, that can grow in the forage base that we don't want, that are detrimental to the cow's room and performance. They're not pathogenic particularly, and we call these things wild yeast for, for want of a better bucket to put them in. But anytime we don't get that forage management correct, we don't seal it correctly and we don't feed it out correctly, these things can grow. And anytime we put a, uh, you know, a contaminated forage into a TMR, that TMR is just going to explode with wild yeast and be detrimental to the cow function. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something here that's a bit of a, a bit of a word that Lollamond is using, but I'm thinking we want really good digestibility forages that are clean and hygienic. And we call this approach clean feed. And, and it's so paramount during the you know, the summertime feeding session. I mean, it's important all year round, but I think this is the time that really accentuates it. And I think if you think about the intro you gave me where we were in the West at the moment, and we're the same all over, I just checked all the all the temperatures around the US, you know, the, the, the rogatet microbes that want to do this aerobic spoilage, they multiply, they can double every hour by the time the ambient temperature gets over 60 degrees Fahrenheit. We're there already, so we can't afford that forage. So I have a little mantra that I use with clients, hot cows hate hot feed. So let's start with a clean, highly digestible, well-made, clean feed forage base. And that would be, you know, our place to start, right? If I build on that now, we want to incorporate that into a TMR. Really then where our, if you like, our mantra is going. I think most people now, if, if they can do this, uh, they'll adjust the feeding schedule, to try and make sure the TMR stays fresh. You know, they'll they'll try and do two X twice a day TMR feeding where they can, where where the labor allocation um, allows it. And then obviously we, we've got great work from from further south and west where the TMR push up routine just keeps those cows engaged. Because one of the challenges is let's just assume that a heat abatement is good. But there are times of the day that comes along to challenge it. And there may be times when the cows are kind of standing in a lane and not inclined to get up. We kind of want those dry matter intakes going. So we want to increase those cows, you know, ability to get up. And also, if we've got a soaker line going, that's going to be at the feed race. So there's all sorts of reasons, you know, the interplay, if you see what I'm saying, Connie, why we want those cows at the feed race, both to get soaked and cooled, okay, and to get that dry matter intake into them. So I, I, I can make a strong case again at least through the daylight hours for, for pushing up every hour, every hour and a half, every two hours. But any farm business thinks it's, it can accommodate. I know that might relax a little bit with the nighttime team. But these are all the practical pointers. And so often we have to be careful here because 
we can't always point the blame a finger at, at the formulation. It's not the nutritionist's fault. Sometimes there are things that we can do in the barn, and we all know in terms of fixed costs, it's just a tightrope to walk between, you know, the labor we've got available, the time we've got available. And of course, it's hot for the human beings to work as well. But that little extra input can make all the difference under these trying conditions to get those cows going. And those those cows now, you know, the, the new normal is between 80 and 100 pounds average on these large herds. That's a lot of heat energy that has to be managed. So it makes all the difference. Our, our 100 pound a day cows now, you know, as a herd average, that means some are doing 160. They're so different to the 40, 50, 60, you know, pound a cow a day from, from 15, 20 years ago, right? Different animal. Right. But that's, that's kind of the macro point, right? I, I got some I got some micro ideas. I call them micro ideas, you know. One I'd love to I hear them. Yeah, here we go. Well, one thing I didn't delve into on the sweating side, and I know there's a bit of boring biology and biochemistry, but I think if people understand what they're dealing with, it helps. You know, we, we, we know as human beings that... Um, our sweat's kind of salty, and so we have a you know a, a pretty good salt-based metabolism. Cows are a little bit different. It's not that sodium isn't important, but potassium is very important to them. And we just have to think about that the way we manage our animals dietetically. You know, in other words, the way the way we feed them. Corn silage, I think, has taken on a large amount of the forage-based feeding and corn products. But if we just think about corn silage for a moment. You know, it's, it's compelling. It, it's a one cup forage and we can get a lot going to the majority of rations are based on that. That's a low potassium forage. And there was some great work done by Joe West of Arizona that has kind of got forgotten by a lot of people. But what we can do is we look at our salt content in the ration and get it where we want it maybe 90 to 100 grams per cow per day. They're then going to come in with sodium bicarbonate, which is quite right. But we may, we may have a, a forage-based TMR that can be lower in potassium than the cows would like because the cow sweat mechanism is potassium-driven, albeit limited, it's potassium-driven. So I personally like to talk to consultants about pushing the envelope out and seeing where their ration potassium is at this time of the year. And they relax it in the winter, and that's a conversation for another day. But through spring, summer, and fall, I like to see a potassium level on a ration dry matter basis of around about 1.3% and, and a potassium sodium ratio of about, of about three to one. And that kind of gets that electrolyte mineral balance into play. Obviously, you and I would go back to the point and think about where the water quality might be, and we may have to balance some of those things off. But by and large, not a lot of people are feeding, you know, 70 to 80 percent high potassium alfalfa anymore. And so the world that we find ourselves in with triticalage and, you know, and corn silage, which are cereal crops, we, we find ourselves in a world where the potassium content is low. And, and that's not unusual for the commodities that are being fed to the cows as well. So I think we can drive that engine a little bit in, in favour of the cows, albeit limited you know, sort of re respiratory behavior and recognize that she is a, a, a potassium dominant animal, if, if, if that makes sense. Have you run out of silage, had to buy expensive, marked up feed to fill the gap? Maybe production's dropped due to lower dry matter intakes. Are molds or mycotoxins creeping through your piles or bunkers? And pitching the rot is a dangerous pain. Oxygen is the enemy Pack it out, then keep it out with Seal Pro, the professional grade silage barrier film protection chosen by top professional farmers like you. Make more, better, safer silage with Seal Pro. Learn more at SealProSilage.com. We're going to pay some attention there to make sure selenium and, and, and vitamin E are all in line, but then we've got the bases covered. 
and and now it kind of leads me on to the, the the world of probiotics or or active dry yeast where we've done some some quite exciting research so i don't know if you'd be interested to hear that at all absolutely so Lollamon, L- 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 as, as a primary producer of bacteria and, and, and yeast, have, have been interested in active dry yeast for, for dairy cows. And we've always had a very good result with our active dry yeast levercell in terms of improving NDF digestibility in the total ration dry matter, but also managing subacute ruminacidosis. And if, if we think back to some of the contents of this presentation that you and I have been talking about together, Kind of we've, we've identified that in those heat stress challenged cows, you know, there's some of the things that uh, uh, cows are warped into a corner. They're more, they're more prone to subacute ruminacidosis and the NDF digestibility you know, can be depressed because the fiber digesting microorganisms get reduced in population and activity with heat stress cows. So well before my time, somebody in Lollamont had the brainwave of, of doing a study where we said, let's put these cows under heat stress for three months continuous. Sounds interesting, right? Because that sounds like where we're going to be this year. We didn't have that amount of foresight, but it was an interesting study concept. They said, hey, we've got this active dry yeast, so let's be fair. Let's get our sodium potassium all organized in the negative control cows. It's going to be a, a, a structured TMR in the way that the university nutritionist would want it. And that's going to be a negative control. And there's nothing wrong with that. But on top of that, well-balanced, high bicarbonate, high sodium, negative control we're going to put one x of this active dry yeast lever cell that's 10 billion cfu per cow per day and we'll try 2x and see what happens because we've never done this before and we kept these cows under you know moderate to severe heat stress for that three month period and monitored all the parameters that we and primary producers and consults will be interested in right so yeah we did the biological things like looking at rumen ph and risk of subacute rumen acidosis yeah we looked at some inflammation parameters but we also did the productive parameters if we've got time i'd like to walk you through a few of them i won't tell you all of them because people can have background information if they'd like but i'd like to walk you through some of the main parameters that will hark back to some of the things we talked about challenging cows here at the moment do we have time Absolutely. Let's go for it. So the, the first thing of note was, you know, the uh, the introduction of the uh, uh, of the lever cell ma- maintained the dry matter intakes. But more importantly, what was going on in the rumen in conversation with them, um, you know, with consultant nutritionists, we often have this debate compared to the beef industry is is do dairy cows, you know, make lactic acid. It's always been my experience when I take the samples, I always find lactic acid. And, and we actually did did that in this study. We, we took samples for lactic acid analysis and we were able to look at it in two ways. You know, and one of the interesting metrics we used was a, a lactic acid content in the rumen fluid over and above one millimolar, saying that could be a challenge for the, the cow's rumen to metabolize. And what we found was, uh, in terms of percent of cows, a linear step down, going from a negative control with no active dry yeast lever cell, all the way down to the 2X. So it went from 40% of the cows exposed to lactic acid to just 10% of the cows exposed to lactic acid. When we put that against a metric that we'd like to use in the industry now, and I think the metric we're all all used to using, Connie, is let's take a a rumen value of pH 5.8, and the time below that will describe whether we've got subacute rumen acidosis. And generally, that's three hours or more below rumen pH 5.8. We followed that metric as well. And lo and behold, you know, the amount of time and the number of cows that were exposed was greatly reduced. So that was that was fantastic to see that affecting the rumen. Um, Obviously, you know, we followed that through to things like 
total ration digestibility improved by four units and more importantly something dear to your and my heart total mdf total nutrient detergent fiber digestibility improved by eight units and then we took blood samples to look at the um, inflammatory challenge to the cows using a marker called serum amyloid a and hey presto that was decreased linear in a stepwise fashion so we were we were saying a number of things that were important there that will keep you know the longevity longevity of the cows going in the herd we're able to protect the rumen and mitigate against sarah and that was wonderful and do it in a stepwise fashion such that you know the 2x was doing a better job than the 1x under these high stress conditions we're able to improve ration digestibility both total dry matter and and the total ndf of course most of which would be forage ndf and again in in, in a two-step fashion linearly increasing both statistically and productivity as far as the 2x um, active dry yeast was concerned but also you know we were able to show that there's some degree of protection albeit just a robust technique that we're we're not exposing the cows to extra inflammatory risk and there's always that fear now i think with heat stress cows that we'll get some of that leaky gut syndrome which will be a conversation for another day but we felt with the lever cell in there we were able to ring fence that off now i know what everybody's thinking and i'm thinking the same thing well well, well that's fine tony but as as primary you know da- da- dairy business producers we we don't get you know paid on reducing lactate or reducing serum amyloid a where, where were we in the in, in the productive metrics and and this one was fascinating to me because if i if i look at the stepwise increase in energy corrected milk it was there and when we looked at the negative control versus the 2x the 20 billion cfu of lever cell pep per day that was plus 3.5 pounds of energy corrected milk and i like to use the energy corrected milk connie because it takes account of the fat and the protein value so there's no hiding place it just so happens that both the milk fat and the milk protein yield and the total milk yield were increased in this study but i think if we talk energy corrected milk yield all the time from negative control to treatments we're comparing apples with apples and i'd always encourage producers to do that you know when they're talking you know, to people providing technology or talking with their consultants and their own team, let's gauge our performance and what we actually see on the bulk tank in terms of energy corrected milk. For instance, you may have a volume increase, but the components might have got diluted. So the yield went no further ahead, right? But if we can get a volume increase and the yield of components is increased, then we're in a winning proposition as, as, as far as, you know, the return on income of a feed cost is concerned. The intriguing thing is the one thing I'd known about Levercell because I'd used it as a dairy consultant myself when I first came to the States is it was able to achieve, you know, these improvements in, in energy-corrected milk yield to the tune of three and a half pounds of, of milk per cow and milk per day with no significant increase in dry matter intake. So there's no increase in grocery cost, but we already knew that we had the improvement in digestible dry matter and digestible NDF. So it looks like it came from, you know, protecting the GI tract and, and, and giving a nice boost to digestibility from the mouth to the back end of the cow, which is a, a nice, a nice study to, to have in one's pocket, so to speak, to show the efficacy of some of the new microbial technology that can help um, dry cows. But I, I, I want to be clear about this, Connie, the way you framed your introduction, you and I both, you know, we start with heat abatement first. It's important to get the cow's environment right. OK, it's important to get that forage base right. We both know that we've both got a, a, a foot in that camp. And then then we build on the other things on, on, on top of that. But we've, we've got to get the basics for the cow right first and allow the team to do the job with good basic heat abatement and good good quality, clean forage feed. Right. 
Right. Uh, you said three and a half pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. How far we've and, come. And, and that was over three months, Connie. I mean, it's not one of those, you know, because this is not a political statement, not meant to be, because at the moment we've got El Nino. So that's not political. It's not about climate change. It's just El Nino's with us and that'll have an influence. So no matter what one's beliefs are, we're, we're just going to be faced with different summers for at least for the next couple of years. I mean, we all see summers right. come and go. And you made the point about nighttime relief, you know. Certainly over here, we, we can get some hot days, but we can get some nighttime relief. At the moment, we, we, we've we had three and a half weeks of, of nonstop heat and humidity through through the day and the night. And, and our fans and sprinklers have been running nonstop. So um, ju- just a different world at the moment and like to be with us for, 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 for the upcoming weeks. Right. Tony, you're in New York. I am sweltering here in New York. I mean, it's interesting. The uh, And by sweltering, it's the humidity again. Right. Which is going to punish the cows from punishing Tony. Um, you know, the, the, the air temperature is 84 degrees, but there's no air movement. And because of the uh, humidity effect, um, it, it's to feel like 87. I mean, if I do a THI on that for, for cows, that's that, that that's going to be brutal. Uh, you know, and, and so here, here's the thing about dairy production, right? Um, we can choose what we want to do as human beings. We can choose how long to be out there and we can choose when we want to go get in the shade or go get in an air conditioned building. The cows don't have the choice and they'll give the they'll give the business and the farm team the signals that they need help. And uh, sometimes we need to put a lot more help in than we have done in previous years. Well, we talked about thank you for all this explanation about uh, in, in uh, lactating cows. What about calves and young stock? Can they benefit from this kind of a, a change or an addition to their diet that we were just talking about? Absolutely. And um, I'm going to backtrack from that. That's a great question. We'll, we'll start there and then backtrack towards dry cows because an important oh, element. Right. Yeah, we, we haven't touched on. So if, um, if, if, if our audience has got time, let's pick up on that. Obviously, you know, calves can stand warmth a lot better than mature dairy cows, but they can't stand heat stress and that's going to knock them back. And it also increases, you know, the challenge of the of, of 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 the bugs that they might come up against. So um, we have some great studies, you know, in, including a- active dry yeast in the in in, in the weaned um, grain that they will get to help re-establish the rumen very quickly, get those fiber digestion microorganisms moving along. I would just say though, and I, I'm not a great calf expert, but what I do see in, in facilities going round. We, we need to keep those calves cool. We need to keep those flies out of there. So again, that abatement and that environment management comes into play. And obviously any, any, any milk spill or, or anything that spills is, is more prone to spoilage. We just have to keep the air movement going, protect the lungs and protect the GI tract. Once we get those calves weaned and, and get them out as, um, as replacement heifers, it, it all depends in what environment the heifers are in. Again, you know, you can look at studies where just a shade cloth, I say just a shade cloth, but a good situated shade cloth can make all the difference. If not, you know, do they have access to trees? But there's always a trade off with, with flies. If we've got the managing barns, you know, some of the things we talked about in upper critical temperature and THI would apply equally well, you know, to these replacement heifers. If we don't make that investment there, and, and I can understand how that might be a tier structure, depending on how much money is available, particularly this year, well, then we're just going to have slower live weight gains because they're going to eat less. And so what's going to happen is that our, our age at first carving will get compromised. And that kind of raises another interesting issue, um, and Bonnie, before we get to dry cows, Let's just say that because it will feed into dry cows. I think, you know, no, no, no dairy business is awash with money at the moment. So anybody who's got some heat abatement, but, but thinking about more, 
we have to have a tier structure of where we think the best bang for, for, for the book is spend-wise. Biologically, someone like me can make all sorts of cases, but economically, we have to think about where the biggest ROI is. So, you know, where cows are bunched together in the collecting area, the collecting pen and the collecting yard is where we first need it. We want banks and banks of fans, and sometimes if we've time to get them soaked there, we need... We need a legion of fans there because those cows are bunched up together before they go for milking. So in the collecting area is, is, is going to be the first spend right and, and, and around the milking area, both both for the cows and the staff. So that, that would be a, a great place to start. Curiously, with all the excellent work that's been done in the University of Florida, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but I, I, I want to put my marker down. That would be another good place to spend it, right? Rather naively as a young English guy coming over, I'm kind of thinking, let's hit these fans in the high yielding pen where the quickest rate of return is. But all, all the studies we've seen now, we'd, we would invest heavily in the dry cows, both the far off and the close up stroke pre-fresh. And then we'd also do that in the maternity pens and the fresh pens. So in other words, we're protecting our investment and, and then we get to the high cows and then you can start to have a big debate with the farm team and the consultant, you know, where you want to go next. And I haven't even touched replacement heifers yet. So they may be a little bit down on the pecking order, right? But I would recognise that they would, they, would, they would get the heat stress. Where, where I think our biggest bang for the book comes is, is managing those dry cows. There must be at least, well, there must be at least five or six studies now done at the University of Florida where, they, where they've shown something where you were going. It's a benefit for the dry cat, you know, in, in terms of reproductive ability. It, it, it's a benefit in terms of, you know, ease of carving and, and, and time of carving. It's, it's a benefit for, for, for cow health and, and well-being and, and cow size and, and cow vitality. And curiously, if we can keep the heat stress off the dam, get this and get that calf dropped compared to those that come from dams that are under heat stress, even if we did nothing else, there's, there's a nice feed on down the line where that uh, that calf that came from that heat protected animal, the heat protected dam, that, that has a better life weight gain and believe it or not, a, a better long term productivity. Of course, if we can take care of them all the way through, that's great. But he, he, heat stress management of, of dry cow dams pays dividend not just for the animal itself. But, but the progeny that she's giving birth to. And then every farm has to take a, a decision about, you know, where, where its heifer-calf ratio is in relation to what it's doing with male calves or crossbreeding against beef as to where they're going to invest. But you get those calves off to a flying start and you protect their future replacement growth rate, but also milk production in their career as a first lactation heifer in coming from a, uh, a, a heat abatement managed dry cow, one that's been kept cool as opposed to one that's been under heat stress. And that will be a tough learning curve for a lot of us, but uh, a lot of us are putting that investment in, into our dairies now and keeping our dry cows, our, our, our close-up cows, our maternity cows, and our fresh cows cool. Great spend. Interesting. Yeah, those dry cows usually like, get left behind. Yeah, there's, there's there's a time. Yeah, we can think over our careers. I certainly can. <laughs> We've kind of seen them out there, and yo, know, then we berate ourselves and wonder why the cars didn't do well. And hey, two years later on, why didn't that tranche of heifers do very well? And you know, we don't have time to look back at when those animals carved right. But we, we we've got all the work all up front now. Publishing journal of dairy science isn't just Tony Hall saying this. It's nothing to do with Lollabon products. We do feed the Lollabon product, you know, to the to the dry cows to help them along. But this is all about that heat abatement investment to keep those dams cool and get vital calves that can go all the way through it. And it pays dividend in, in the in the subsequent milk yield. Who knew? Yes, absolutely. Phenotype, phenotype meets genotype. 
Well, thank you so much, Tony. We've, I'm going to summarize kind of what we've talked about today. Um, we've talked about how cows are affected by heat and the THI or temperature humidity index that we can use to judge uh, when those cows are starting to get themselves uh, hot and into trouble. We've talked about how cows, they, their mechanisms within their body about the uh, sweating only through their nose and their mammary glands. So we, this is one of the things that we've, we've really got to pay attention. We've talked about facility uh, heat abatement, shades, fans, misters, moving the air at, uh, at a minimum of five miles per hour and having it on those cows and mist soaking them for an evaporative cooling effect. Um, we've talked about drinking space and uh, trough space and keeping those water that water clean and, and making sure that your pumps are able to handle um, the amount of water that's going to take to make sure that your cows have plenty of clean, fresh water. We've talked about feeding. We've talked about making and managing better silages and other feeds so that those uh, animals are being able to consume cool feed. When you had mentioned the word clean feed, which I mm -hmm. totally agree with, and that hot cows don't like hot feed. And that's that we can underline that double. Also talked about pro the probiotic and uh, on, the, on a level of a macro and micro uh, nutrition, we've talked about probiotic and the Love You Cell product that um, helps with the, uh, the rumen and, and help with, uh, moving things through uh, through the rumen. And we've talked about finally with dry cow management and, and heifers and, and how that, uh, that dry cows that have calves that are kept cool, the, the cows are kept cool, how much more vigor and productive those calves and cows can be. So is there anything else, Tony, that you would like to add to our conversation today? Uh, nothing technical, Connie, but I would like to say thank you to the audience for staying with me. I now have a Celtic Northern English accent. And I tend to talk too fast, but hopefully there's some interesting stuff there. Um, it's been a long while since I've seen you. I'd like to thank you for hosting me and giving this opportunity. And also a thanks to our dairy business colleagues for this opportunity. Thank you all for letting me be with you today and stay safe and cool out there. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been a really interesting uh, edition of the Dairy Voice podcast. We've been talking with Tony Hall of Lalamond Animal Nutrition. Oh, one thing I'll ask, Tony, if mm. people want to find out more information, is there a website that they can go to? Yeah, if they go to lalamondanimalnutrition.com, they will they will find the uh, the information uh, and, and, and that would not not be a problem. Yeah, we, we can get information to them and, and a lot of the stuff I've quoted would, would be referenced if it's not on the website. And they can all also email me at um, ahall at lalamond.com. Okay, and to be clear, Lalamond is spelled L-A-L-L-E, M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, D as in dog, dot com. Correct. So, uh, there we are. This has been Connie Cooper for the uh, Dairy Voice podcast by Dairy Business News, and I work with Seal Pro Silage Barrier Film by Connor Agri Science. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. <laughs>